Last week we began to study the book of Romans. And uh, we are still going to be in the first chapter. Been here long, you know it takes me a while to, to work through things. Sometimes I repeat a little bit and this, that, and the other, but I uh, just want to remind us of how important this particular book is. Uh, it's possibly the most theological book in all of the New Testament apart from uh, the Gospels because the Gospels are just filled with the theology of Christ as he expounds it for us in those words. But Romans has had a great deal to do with revival in the church over the years, uh, had everything to do with the Reformation, a lot of the ideas and thoughts that came forth and were presented so very clearly in the Protestant Reformation uh, came from uh, Paul's writings in the book of Romans. I want to remind us this morning that Paul is writing this letter to believers he uses at times very strong language. He's encouraging them not to be complacent. I think you get nothing else from the book of Romans. It may be this lesson, and that is that Christianity is not a place for complacency. It's a place for ever growing. A place for being stretched beyond where we have been before. To encourage us. To teach us. Remember, Paul is writing a letter to a group of people he has never met. And what we have here is this, is a book that is just full of theological teaching. Now, why would Paul do that? Well, obvious reasons, and that is this. Is he, he, he's not writing this stuff just because he wants to impress these people or... Uh, he, he didn't have anything better to do on the particular day, sat down and, and penned this book of Romans. He writes this letter with willful and purposeful intent. And the intent of it is to encourage these believers to be challenged theologically, not to be complacent, to continue to grow in Christ and their knowledge and their understanding of things. Why is it here in the Bible? For the same reason for you and for me. Let me just say this. If we went all the way through the book of Revelation and your, your thoughts and your approach to things did not change one iota by that study, then we wasted our time. If we're going to do the same thing with Romans now, if we're not transformed at least to some degree, to some measure by the end of, the, of our study here, then we've wasted our time here. We're just Christians going through the same stuff over and over again and, and, and having maybe the mentality that we're kind of where we're at and we just, we're okay where we are and we just need to kind of stay there. It's not what you're going to find in the Bible. You're going to find, and in particular in the New Testament, there's this encouragement to grow, to go beyond. Don't be satisfied where you are. To stretch, to expand your understanding, expand your influence, increase in your commitment 
Paul, a bondservant of Christ, Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, and who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit and holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. The obedience of faith among the Gentiles. This is his point. This is why he's writing. To call these people to obedience. For his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request that perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you in order that I might impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with, with you, while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I think one of the main points that we need to gather from this is this, is that Paul didn't have tunnel vision. Paul was not focused on Paul's ministry specifically. That he had a much bigger vision. It's very easy for pastors, it's very easy for churches to have tunnel vision. To focus upon particular things. And at the same time, not give much thought or much prayer to things going on in the ministry of the, the, uh, the church of Jesus Christ in the world that does not have anything maybe specifically to do with them. I think that's the challenge of this, is to get beyond compartmentalism. He's writing to a church in Rome. Now, we know that at this point that Paul had never been to Rome at this point. Now, we do know this. We understand that eventually Paul does make it to Rome, and it's a considerable amount of time after he writes this letter. And we know that he goes there under arrest. And after, uh, after, after being there for a number of years, He was beheaded around 65 A.D. by the command of Emperor Nero about the same time that the Apostle Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. 
how did Paul even know anything about the Romans, about the Roman church? You know, they didn't have the kind of communication systems that we have today. The, the, you know, the word about things going on here, there, and yonder took a long time to get from here or there to yonder. Did Paul have any connection with Rome at all through anybody that you can think of? Okay. If you think about his second missionary journey, he bumped into this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, in a place called Corinth. Why were they in Corinth? Because they had been driven out of Rome because of an edict of the emperor that said all Jews and Christians had to leave the city. I would imagine most of what Paul knows about Rome and the, and the church in Rome has come through Priscilla and Aquila. One of the challenges of this passage here is this, is it's so easy for Christians, and I think it's even easier for Christians and for churches in the good old U.S. of A. to become compartmentalized where they just, they see themselves as a particular entity disconnected from everybody else and this, that, and the other. They do their ministry, but their ministry is their ministry. One of the big reasons that we did Covenant Children's Home, guys and gals, if you think back, if you were here early on, you can remember some of the conversations. And one of the reasons we did it was to provide an opportunity for the churches in our area to come together and do ministry in common with one another. How does the world out there look at the church today? The the world out there in general, and and, and 35 years ago, before I was a believer, this is how I looked at the the church, is this this big, almost disconnected group of people who didn't seem to want to have much to do with other people that were supposed to be part of the same group. You go to other places, you're going to find things to be very different. One of the things that impressed me when I was in Uganda the first time was this. As we were there, hosted by World Harvest Mission, which was a, a mission agency that was created by uh, Jack Miller, who was the pastor of one of the PCA churches in Philadelphia. And so it was not directly a PCA ministry, but it was all of the, all of the missionaries there were PCA people. Jack and Rosemary Miller were PCA people. But when you get on the foreign mission field, and there's a sense in which you're almost out there by yourself, you'd be surprised to see how Christians of various denominations and churches gravitate toward one another. So they will have local support from one another for what they're doing. In Fort Portal, there's a Baptist mission, and there's a Swedish Pentecostal mission. There are some other missions that don't come to mind right now. There's even a, there's the biggest, you know what the biggest mission is in Fort Portal? Roman Catholic. And let me tell you something. All those people spend a lot of time with each other. They're kind of like the support base for each other. 
In other words, there's a sense in which this denominationalism that dominates the church landscape in the United States almost disappears. Because they see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ with a common goal, and that is the conversion of the people there to Christianity. Michael and Cindy see the same thing in Honduras. Michael and Cindy go, they attend a church that is a, is, is a, a, ba- is a Baptist mission in La Ceiba. Michael preaches there very often. Wouldn't it be nice if the church in the United States had more of that kind of appearance than it does? Because I guarantee you, most of the people out there just look upon the church. I can remember when I was in kindergarten. We went to First Baptist Church in Ocala when I was growing up. Not that we were even that faithful at going there, but we went there on a semi-regular basis. And the crazy thing about it was this is, is I can remember being in worship just two or three times when I was a child because it was very common in Baptist churches for Sunday school to be the thing emphasized and worship not really emphasized at all. So all kinds of people would go to Sunday school. Their attendance for Sunday school was far greater than it was for the worship service because we most of the time would go home after we went to Sunday school. And, and, and very rarely did we go to worship. And it wasn't just us, it was, that was pretty common. But I went to kindergarten across the street at Happy Hearts Kindergarten at the First Presbyterian Church. And it's funny how you have these little memories about stuff that took place. I can remember being in the playground at Happy Hearts Kindergarten when I was five or six years old, wondering why I go to church across the street and then I come to kindergarten here. Aren't these all Christians? What's the difference? See, Paul sees none of those kinds of boundaries. He's freely, willingly, desiringly writing a letter to people, church members, that have real no direct connection to him at all. To encourage them, to strengthen them, to be about the work that Christ has set forth for them to do. In verse 8, he talks about how the faith of the Roman church is being talked about everywhere. How strong the faith of these believers in Rome is. Now, he doesn't say here specifically why. If you know anything of history, you can probably figure it out. There probably was no place in the world in in those days with greater, more severe persecution than in the city of Rome itself. When I was there back in the 70s, I visited Rome and I went down one afternoon to the catacombs. I had really no meaning for me, but, but it's these series of tunnels that go for miles and miles and miles under the ground, tunnels and caves. 
burial sites for Jews and Christians, many of whom were martyred. We just finished the book of Revelation. We talked about the persecution that was going on in Southeast Asia Minor or Southwest Asia Minor. We started Second Peter in Sunday school. Same kind of persecution going on in Eastern Asia Minor. But just think about it. Rome was the place where Caesar lived. Caesar was a god in the eyes of the Romans. They worshipped Caesar just like he was a god. Think about all the pagan idols and temples and things that were there in Rome. Pagan worship was all over the place. In your face, you couldn't get away from it. Everywhere. And you can imagine the persecution of Christians in a place like that was intense. Very great. That these believers are noted within the church throughout the whole ancient world. Because of their great faith. Why? Because they were standing firm. Even in the midst of great difficulty. Constantly their lives under the threat of death. You think about stuff that went on a little later on. Christians being thrown to the wild animals in the Colosseum. That really happened for people's entertainment. Nero really did literally use Christians as torches to light his garden at night. Douse them in oil or pitch or tar or whatever and set them on fire to provide light for his nightly parties. The faith of the Roman Christians was great. They were in the cauldron. And it was an encouragement to every other believer in the ancient world who heard about it. It encouraged them where they were to live their life to the fullest for the Lord Jesus Christ. When we hear things like that, it should encourage us to do the same as well. Persecution here in the United States is increasing. The influence of the church is decreasing. For a reason. And the reason is there's a real shallowness of faith here. People here that are church people very often don't live, breathe, and teach Christ Jesus in their words and in their life. You know, you walk down the street in, in the United States, even today, I would imagine that the statistics would show things have changed somewhat over the years, but there would still be a majority of people, you ask them if they were Christians, or if you ask them what their religion was, they would tell you they're Christians. 
But if you start digging into what that means to them, you would find out they're not Christians in what they say. They don't understand what Christianity is. And they certainly don't practice it. There could come a time when the, the, when the church here in the good old U.S. of A. is undergoing extreme, unmitigated persecution. Trend-wise, that is where we're headed. Things continue the way they are, it will come. It's only a matter of time. Already trying to take away people's freedom to speech. And if we lose that, it's only a matter of time before there are going to be restrictions on our freedom of religion. It's coming. And unfortunately, there's an argument that could be made that that might be the very best thing to happen for the church in the United States. To suffer a little bit of persecution. Because let's just be honest, we've become lazy and fat and just kind of happy where we're at. You know, we look at the world and we see a world consumed by, by themselves. The most of the things that they're interested in are the things that have to do with them. And honestly, don't we have the same mentality to, to some degree? that we're most concerned about our own lives, that we're most concerned about the things that affect us specifically and directly. Is our faith known throughout the whole world as being great? There was a time when it was. Back in the very roots of what we just celebrated a couple of days ago. America is what it is because America was founded upon Christian religion. People can argue, try to argue other things, but history just, I mean, this right out of the history books. Christianity is what formed this land. And it's become the greatest nation that the earth has ever known. More freedoms for people than anyone has ever appreciated at all. But those freedoms have been taken for granted. And and, and so many people take them for advantage. Because they've always had them. But the majority of mankind has never had any near the numbers of freedoms that you you and I have. You can't speak freely. You can't worship freely. And if the church is complacent, it'll happen. And there's a real sense in which the church appears to be complacent today. Remember all the people who've fallen for, for freedom on the battlefields over the years. 
don't ever forget all of our brothers and sisters who've fallen on the battlefield of Christ through all the generations and those who will die today for their faith. Paul was a prayer warrior. He was a, he was a preacher. He was a prayer warrior. Do you have a prayer list? You know, there's certain people that you pray for on a regular basis. And you've been praying for for years on a regular basis. How big is your list? Can you imagine how big Paul's list was? Way bigger than we can even comprehend, I would imagine. I can't believe, I wouldn't believe for a minute that the Apostle Paul spent less than literally hours doing nothing but praying every single day. Calvin said this, prayer is the chief exercise of faith which raises a question if there's not prayer then is there really faith Martin Luther said at one time that if he didn't spend three hours in prayer at the beginning of the day then he felt like he couldn't accomplish anything through the rest of it Can you imagine how many people here have ever at one time in their life come close to praying for three hours? When I was in seminary, there were a number of, of I, I really feel so blessed going to the school I went to at the time I went to it. I sat under some of the very best teachers, their very best reform uh, teachers in, in the modern day church. Feel so blessed for having that education. One of them was Steve Brown. You know anything about Steve Brown? I, you don't hear anything about Steve Brown much anymore, but at one time he was very prominent in the PCA. Noted to be one of the most, the best preachers in all of our denomination. Had a lot of influence that went beyond his church has an ongoing ministry now that's going on, and he's getting well up into his years. I remember the first time I saw Steve Brown, because when you hear Steve Brown, it sounds like the voice of God talking. If you, think, if you have some idea of what God's voice sounds like, I think probably Steve Brown would come about as, as this, this deep, baritone, manly, masculine voice. The first time I saw Steve Brown, I couldn't believe it, because he doesn't look anything like he sounds. I mean, his voice and his, his physical appearance don't seem to go together at all. But one of the things about Steve Brown that impressed me was this, is that when you were one of his seminary students, he was praying for you every single day. Every day. 
He had, a, he had an ongoing prayer list that had literally hundreds of people on it. And he prayed for every one of those people every single day. Now, I wish I could say to you that I pray for you every single day. I don't. I do pray for you on a regular basis, everyone in this room. And as many of your children and grandchildren and other relatives that I know of. I hope prayer is a big part of your life. It ought to be. It's one of those things that we can do while we're doing other things too. There's some things I would encourage you not to do while you're driving. Don't text. There's no reason why you can't pray. You know, praying doesn't necessarily mean you have to be down on your knees with your eyes closed. Prayer is just simply talking to God. What about when you're mowing the grass? Or you're washing the dishes? Prayer, my friends, is vital to your spiritual health. Prayer, my friends, is vital to the spiritual health of all of the church. I would be so bold to say if it wasn't for prayer warriors, there wouldn't be a church. One of the things that Paul is praying in verse 10 is this. He's praying that he would be enabled to come to them. He wants to come to them. He wants to see what's going on there. Maybe join them in their persecution. Maybe that's why Paul wants to be there, because he doesn't really feel like he's being that persecuted doing what he's doing. He wants to be more in the thick of things. He longs to see them in order that he may impart some spiritual gift to them. So why did he write this letter? Because as yet he hasn't been able to do that in person. His whole purpose in writing this letter is to impart some spiritual gift to them. And his gift to them is teaching. He can't participate in all the other things that are going on there, but Paul can teach. He can write letters. And he writes this letter for a purpose, and the purpose is this, is even though he's heard about what was going on in Rome and and the great faith of the people there, he also knows that in their understanding of a lot of things, they're rather immature. They don't understand the the deep, deep things of God. That's the whole purpose he writes this letter. is so that they would increase in their knowledge and their understanding of theology. Now, theology itself has has gotten a bad rap in our day. There are a lot of people who say, the only thing theology does is it just cloudies the water. 
We have theology to thank for all of the division in the church today. That was not the approach of the Apostle Paul. Paul knew that theology was important. It, it was very important what you understood and what you believed when it came to everything to do with your religion. And that every bit of it is biblically, soundly, biblically based. Not man-made, not human-manufactured, but according to the Word of God. That thought, that idea is what brought about the Protestant Reformation, sola scriptura. God speaking and his people listening. I'm on the the examining committee of Presbytery and one of the questions I always ask is this when I begin my exam. is theology for the learned people, for the pastor types, for the seminary professors or is theology for the masses? Paul says theology is for the masses. It's for every believer. It's important for you to understand what God has done, what God is doing, how he's doing it, and why he is. That's true for everyone in this room. Unfortunately, obviously, there were people in Rome who were misinformed about a good number of things, and Paul is writing to set things straight. God gifted Paul in all kinds of ways. He gave him a gift of prayer. Now, that's not one of those spiritual gifts you find listed in the New Testament, but do you think that there probably is a spiritual gift of praying? I would imagine. There's definitely a spiritual gift of teaching, and this is what Paul was above and beyond everything else. He was a teacher. He wanted everyone to understand. One of the things that I love about this, this book is this, is that Paul knows that he goes about teaching a lot of the things that we're going to find here in the content that people are going to have all kinds of flags going off and questions about. The neat thing about it is Paul has enough forethought to anticipate those questions and he gives you the answer right there. He does it over and over again. So we start going through here. Keep an eye out because he'll ask questions all over the place. And he asks hard questions. Questions that he knows are going to raise eyebrows among some people because they don't sound exactly the way that they think they ought to. But then he gives the answer. To those questions. 
But my whole point in this is even though Paul has not come to Rome, and let me tell you, when he gets to Rome, is Paul complacent there? Does he not really do anything? He's under house arrest, and that's just kind of the end of his life. He's going to sit around and twill his thumbs for the, until the end comes. Late in his life, God gives Paul the opportunity to, to go to Rome, to teach in Rome. He was given the freedom to teach people. And Paul was able to write to the Philippians that it's actually been to the benefit of the church that I was arrested because it's opened up all kinds of ministry opportunities for me. All the people around were freaking out because Paul was in prison now and, and Paul was probably going to be executed and that was going to just be the end of the church. Paul saw it entirely differently. It was just another ministry opportunity for Paul. In his time there, he writes that the gospel spread throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. It wasn't just Romans being converted to Christianity. It was Roman soldiers being converted to Christianity. And even into the very household of Caesar Got to love Paul. Got to love Paul. What a heart. What a passion. And like we were saying last week, you know, in, in, in the beginning, this, this intense, dedicated, persecutor of the church he did everything in his power to snuff out Christianity before it got started good but talk about a man transformed after he was transformed there's not a single person who did more who put more energy more effort into to the, the growth and the strengthening of the church than the apostle Paul did was consumed with it. Consumed to grow the church that at one time he was consumed to completely eradicate. There ought to be a little bit of Paul in all of us. Seriously. We will move on. So we won't be here next week. Kevin will be here. Uh, but guess what we're doing the week after we get back? Moving on in Romans.